Well, good morning, everyone. We hope this Sunday morning and this time of worship finds you all well. We are now in week three, the final installment on a journey that we have simply titled Home. And as that great video indicated, we've had a conversation over these past few weeks about how we use our time, how we use the physical spaces in our lives, how we gather groups of individuals together to become a home to one another. And home is not limited just to a physical structure, tables and chairs, or beds and linens. It is the group of people that come around us and we around them to invest in one another, to pray for one another, to build up faith with one another, and to spend life together so that we are not alone, so that we feel safe, and so that we feel loved. And so that is the conversation that we've been having together. And today I'd like to focus our attention on what it looks like to develop what that video called a tribe of people, a very specific circle of individuals who invest in one another in an intentional and unique way. How many of you have ever read the book, The Giving Tree? Anyone? Yeah, Shel Silverstein. How many of you have ever cried when you read that book? You don't have to raise your hand. Some of you don't want to do that. <laughs> I have cried almost every time that I've read that book. I remember sitting and reading it to my children when they were younger, and my daughter would know exactly which page would set me with a few tears, and she would go, oh, mommy, not again. <laughs> it's a book that, if you haven't read it, is about sacrifice and giving. Once there was a tree, and the tree loved a little boy. And the story goes on to tell how the tree sacrificed over time leaves and apples, branches and bark, and eventually everything but the stump was left to provide that boy a space to sit and rest. There are these stories we read as children that we loved for a particular reason as a child that sort of churn the sea of our souls as adults because we know there's tremendous truth in them. They remind us that when the anxieties and the pressures of the day and when we set aside our agendas and all that we wrestle with, they remind us that we're to be about more than just ourselves and all that we want out of this life. And this book in particular reminds us of the sacrificial giving that we are invited to bring to the circles of people that we gather with and call home. Today, I'd like our journey to focus specifically on how we can create those sacred spaces for the children, not just in this community, but around the world. We all need a home, we all need a circle, but what does it look like? What is God's command to us that we raise up the next generation? And some of you might find yourself thinking right now, oh, I don't have kids, maybe I shouldn't have come today. The reality is that only 58% of you do not, 58% of you do not have children in your home. Only 42% of us actually have little people under the age of 18 in your homes. Some of you have raised those people up and you have a sigh of relief right now that they are no longer in your physical homes. 
The reality, however, is that the Bible commands us to care for children, whether we have biological children or not, whether we are young or old, single or married, students or grandparents. The Bible is clear that children matter and an investment in their lives is essential for passing the faith on to the next generation. Jesus, who himself did not have biological children, consistently invited children to come to him. He invested in them, he taught them, he loved them, he called them to him. He said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. The kingdom of heaven, all that is good and true and just from God belongs to these children. So do not hinder their access to the holy, to the presence of Jesus. Children are held up as examples for the way adults should approach their faith. We are reminded to be children of the light, children of the most high. The spirit of God tells us in Romans that we are God's children. Scripture reminds us over and over again to care for the children, the orphans and the fatherless, those without parents. And many examples of faith, stories that we treasure and we tell over and over again that we cling to today happened to children. Mary and Joseph in the Christmas narrative they were like freshmen and sophomores in high school. They were young teenagers when God took them on that journey and put people like Elizabeth and Zachariah around them to help fulfill their God-given purposes. It was a young boy who relinquished his lunch that Jesus would then take and eventually use to become the meal that fed the 5,000. Young Timothy, is mentored and shaped by Paul to become the capable ministry leader that we read about in scriptures. And when Jesus tells us to care for the least of these, he certainly includes children. The young hearts and souls who cannot navigate the world or advocate for themselves, who are at the mercy of the adults around them, when he says care for the least of these, children are absolutely included in that. And we find ourselves now at a place in history and knowing that what we face now has been true for most of human history, there are places in our world where our children are in tremendous crisis. Nearby here at home, kids are killing each other on the city streets, stray bullets take young lives, children face neglect and violence and abuse, some of them face tremendous pressure to perform and achieve with no safe circle to process the fear and anxiety they have so they turn to addiction or anger. Around the world they are often trafficked and discarded and millions upon millions of migrant and refugee families right now are ripped apart from one another and stacked up along the borders all over the world. And regardless of our political position on any of the issues of our day, children are caught in the crossfire of so many of these tragedies. So how do we take the biblical truth that is presented to us every weekend when we come here to worship 
and harness what we know and what God is calling us to do for the good and the glory of God and for the well-being of the child and the children that he has created. I'd like to walk us today through a narrative that comes to us from the book of Exodus, the very beginning of Exodus. It's the story that we find ourselves in after Genesis ends, Genesis with Joseph and his amazing technicolor dream coat. We've just finished that story. And through the life of Joseph, the Israelites, the Hebrews, as they're called in this passage, have flourished under occupation in Egypt. They have found favor with the king who was on the throne at the time of Joseph. They have, in many ways, some luxuries, some comforts, a community around them that they could actually call home. And scripture tells us, however, that the king who knew Joseph and appreciated Joseph's leadership died. And a new king, a new pharaoh, comes to the throne in Egypt. And he cares nothing for the Hebrews. In fact, he's overwhelmed and intimidated and scared by them. The number of people who fall into the category Hebrew overwhelms him. And he says this, look, he said to his people, the Israelites, they have become far too numerous for us. So come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, they will fight against us and they will leave the country. He risks losing his nation and his labor force and he panics. And so he, the scripture tells us, oppresses the Hebrew people into harsh labor. And they struggle and they toil and yet they still thrive. They still increase in number. They still increase in community. And so desperate for some solution to snuff these people into submission, to snuff them out, he pulls the two midwives who oversee the births of these people and says to them, the minute a baby boy is born, you are to see to it that they are killed right there in that moment. And these women do not follow through. They engage in their act of civil disobedience and refuse to follow this edict. The king follows up and says, why are these boys living? And they kind of go, I don't know. They give birth so fast, we can't get there on time. And so he says, you know what? Then let's take this one step further. Take those young boys when they're born and march them down to the banks of the Nile River and drown the children. Drown the baby boys. And it is under this edict and into this scenario that a woman named Jochebed, who's a Hebrew woman, finds herself pregnant. Knowing that if she happens to give birth to a boy, that the command on his life is that he find himself drowned in the Nile River. And sure enough, she gives birth to a baby boy. And she chooses, obviously, not to follow that edict, and she hides him. But kids grow, and they start crawling and walking, and they need to eat, and they scream, and they cry, and they talk, and you cannot hide a baby forever. And so she pulls a tribe together to come around the life of this child. And she takes and puts his sister on the banks of the Nile River and then pays attention to the exact time that the Pharaoh's own daughter was going to come down and bathe in the river, a time that would have been known 
by anyone in the area, a time where the particular section of river they were on would have been safe. Certainly, no one would want the Pharaoh's daughter attacked by some wildlife or a crocodile or whatever it might be on the banks of the river. So there's this sort of safe spot, and this baby's sister is downstream, and Jochebed brings her baby boy and puts him, scripture tells us, in a basket, papyrus basket covered in tar and pitch, and lets go of him, and he floats down the river. And praise God, he ends up at the feet of Pharaoh's daughter, who looks down, and suddenly there is a baby in a basket at her feet. And she opens that basket, and we're told the baby is crying, and she has sympathy on him and scoops him up and instantly recognizes this is one of the Hebrew babies, and says to her servant girl who is with her, go, find one of those Hebrew women to nurse him and to bring him to life. And oh, isn't it convenient? His mom is standing right there. Oh, I'm one of the Hebrew women. Do you need help? <laughs> Do you know who this child is? Who knows who this is? Moses. This is the tribe that came around that child so he could grow up into God's good purposes for his life. No one knew that a little three-month-old in a basket was going to become the prince of Egypt, but this is what is possible when we gather a tribe of committed, faith-filled people around a child. This is what we, my friends, are called to do in our own places, on whatever Nile River is lapping at our lives. This is the high and holy call that we have to build a tribe around the children who God has placed in our paths and in this world. Now when I was uh, maybe in seventh grade, I think it was seventh grade, going into eighth grade, I had received a bit of freedom from my parents, and this was before an era of cell phones and texting, and there was a summer where we were allowed to ride our bikes a little further than we normally did, and we were allowed to put some cash in our pockets and go get Slurpees or whatever sort of freedom that we had in late middle school. And I remember one particular day that my sister and I and a group of our gal pals hopped on our bikes and all told our moms we were going to the park or the pool, I think it was, I can't remember exactly. What I do remember is that none of us had any intention of going to the park or the pool. There was a particular group of boys that wanted to hang out with our little pack of girls, and so we hustled our bikes over to this one boy's house, and none of us were supposed to be there. And we spent a couple hours hanging out with these boys, and then we all biked home. And I walked into the door, and how many of you as a parent have ever done this, or a child have ever experienced it? My mom turned her head sideways, like, like, like eons of women have this look, right? And said, how was your day? Instantly, I was like, oh no, <laughs> she knows. And for some reason, I decided not to lie. I was prone at times to lie to my mother. And I decided in that moment, I'm not going to lie about this because I already know I'm in so much trouble. <laughs> and I said, Mom, we didn't go to the park. We went to so-and-so's house. She goes, oh, I know. She goes, it was around noon, wasn't it? And I was like, <gasps> she goes, you guys stayed till about four? And I was like, <gasps> and I looked at her and I go, how do you know this? And she goes, oh, honey, she goes, don't you ever forget, I 
know everything, <laughs> right? I used that same line on my own daughter this week when she did something and I was like, oh, sweetie, I know everything. She had friends. She had friends, neighbors, people who loved my sister and I who knew that we shouldn't be off on our bikes with this little group of guys and someone picked up the phone and called my mom and she knew. And you know what? We didn't make that decision again. This is good. This sort of experience is a very good experience, and any of us currently raising children, or those of you who have raised children, are thankful for those phone calls. Those are good phone calls, and we need those people. But what I want to suggest to you today is a step beyond that circle, beyond just noticing the kid on the street who isn't quite where they're supposed to be, or maybe who didn't make it to the right practice for some shady reason. I want to invite us to consider what it looks like to go a step beyond that and to intentionally invest time and attention and faith conversations into the lives of the children around us. Today, the threats that our children face look different than the banks of the Nile River, but the reality is we have to invest in them in that same way. Research on youth who have been invested in by adults, mentored, coached, or absolutely led spiritually, the research is staggering. Kids who have adults invest in them in an intentional way win at almost every level. They are less likely to try drugs, exhibit violent behavior, they do better in school, they're more self-confident, they're more likely to graduate from high school, they cite higher educational aspirations than youth who are not invested in, they're statistically less combative and more likely to take a positive approach to the struggles that they have. The win, my friends, is not just for the kid or the mentee alone. Adults who invest in and mentor and pour their faith journeys and their faith stories into children are more confident. They develop better supervisory skills. They cite increased self-esteem. Many celebrate a new network of connections and friends that they find as they journey with a child. They have an increased sense of accomplishment and purpose and certainly cite increased patience. If you find yourself, like I know I do, looking at the news and the stories of our day, looking heavenward and saying, Lord, how many more times are we going to watch an American high school come under fire? How many kids are going to kill each other in our cities? How much hurt and anguish are our children going to suffer to the point where young students take their own lives? If you find yourself wondering how to get around this issue, scripture has an answer. Pour yourself, the story of God in you, into a child. Bring your faith journey and the narrative of God moving your soul to a good place to the life of a young person who so desperately needs to know that they are loved and that they matter and that they are cared for and that they are safe. And that beyond you, the God of the universe 
has a plan for their life, that they too can be picked up out of the basket and brought to safety and grow into a faith-filled, God-honoring adulthood. This is a high calling, my friends, and we can do it. And so I want to submit to you three things that we find in this Moses narrative, this Exodus narrative, three things that happened that we can employ in our own lives to begin to come around another child and become their tribe. Commit. Commit to this. Make a decision and stick with it. In this narrative, the women who came around Moses, they were unequivocally committed to this. It took great risk to do this for Moses. It wasn't a haphazard, maybe I'll do it sort of on the fly decision that they maybe changed their mind on later. They made a dramatic commitment. They committed their lives to it. They risked their very lives to pull it off. If any one of them was caught by anybody along this journey, they surely would have been killed for it. That is commitment. And beyond this story, if you flip the pages of your scripture, you will find there are no easy, quick solutions to the issues that plague humanity. Instead, we see stories over and over again of patience, of commitment, of long-suffering, of trying and then trying again, and then trying again and again and again. If there's any story that we can hold as an example, it's surely the story of our own Lord and Savior, who is so patient and long-suffering with us, who watches us as his children trip and fumble and make mistake after mistake after mistake, and he picks us up and he dusts us off, and God says, all right, Let's try this again. It is not an easy journey to commit to a child and to pour your faith and your love into the life of a child. Commit to the long journey. Make the decision to do it and then stick with it. All of the wonderful benefits that I just cited about investing in the life of a kid, they're true for children who have been invested in for a minimum of two years. Anything less than two years is unsteady because children become attached to adults and to the stories and the commitment they're making. And when it's suddenly pulled away, they struggle. And so make the long-standing, long-suffering commitment to this journey. Second, what we see in this narrative is a plan. This doesn't happen accidentally. And clearly, as we discussed, Jochebed knew exactly where to put her son exactly what time to let him go adrift in the river. His sister just happened to be in the exact right spot in case something went wrong. She could grab this basket and they could try it again another day. It takes planning. We live in this frenetic, frenzied culture, impulsive so many times. We have to actually sit down and make a step-by-step -step plan to do this. If you want to know how to begin to invest in children, you can start right here at Christ Church. You can find anybody on our family ministry team and they will let you know there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of students and children that come to this building that need this exact sort of tribe and circle. Think about it. 
Make a plan. Don't be weird about it. Don't just go grab some random kid and say, I'm going to invest in you. Maybe talk to their parents first. It usually helps. <laughs> you see, if we think this through, set up some meetings, set up some appointments, find the parents that you know that still have young children in their house and say to them, what, do you, what does your generation of children need? What can we do to support you? And maybe we can't help your exact family, but what are you seeing in your schools, in your community, in your neighborhoods? Talk to Felicia Thompson. She's invested in the Roosevelt Road community. There's tons of kids there. Find a way to come around these children. Make a plan. Last, reach beyond your own circle. Look beyond the kids that look and act and talk like you. Here's what's so fascinating in this narrative. Egyptian women and Hebrew women pitted against one another as mortal enemies. Rich and poor, they crossed ethnic lines, they crossed economic lines, they crossed social lines to find the child that God had called them to bring up into adulthood with faith and with flourishing. So do not be afraid to look beyond the circle of kids that you see immediately before you. According to UNICEF, there are 2.2 billion children on planet Earth right now. So that means there's a lot of them that are probably not in your immediate neighborhood. And hundreds and hundreds of millions of them are in extreme poverty, they're trafficked, they're in horrible circumstances. And some of you are called to care for those children. And if that is you, Find our mission department. Find John Klingelhofer. We have mission partners that are loving children all over the world. Some of you may need to get on an airplane. Some of you may go somewhere to love up on kids and not come back to the physical home that you have here. But you will find a new home somewhere else in God's world. And I don't know about you, but God is calling us to do something along this list for children, and so you need to figure out what it is and pray about it and wonder about it and talk about it with your friends and your family. Reread this scripture, immerse yourself in it, and wrestle with what you are being called to do, what kind of tribe you're being called to build up around the life of a child. In the sanctuary, there's um, a great guy this morning named Dave Bianch, and if you haven't met him before, he's wonderful. He's preaching a similar message today in the sanctuary. He's the guy that came up here once and played guitar and built his own guitar. He's pretty amazing. He has a wood shop in his basement, and uh, he has made baskets of these little batons to symbolize the passing on of faith. When we have these great experiences in our lives, when we've been poured into, when a circle of people have come around us, it's not doesn't stop with us. Scripture tells us we're to pass on the faith, to pass the baton. And there's baskets of these for us to take today as a reminder. When you watch the Olympics, if any of you have done that, and you watched track and field, you would notice how brilliantly the sprinters and the runners pass a baton from one participant to the next. 
They do it so quick and so effortless, they cannot lose a nanosecond, and they don't. And they line up perfectly in a lane, and they get their legs and arms moving exactly in time, and then one person comes and hands the baton off to the other, and they go, and it's effortless. It's beautiful, stunning to watch. It's the complete opposite of the seventh grade track meet that I was at earlier this year. When I watched a bunch of seventh graders pass a baton on a track for the first time, it was not pretty. They actually, one team actually came and one kid just chucked the baton at the other kid and it bounced on the track and it bounced into somebody else's lane and one kid tripped and another kid fell over and I actually saw a shoe fly up. I don't know who lost a shoe, but there was one kid that finished the race without a shoe. And you would think it was the Olympics because when they finally figured it out and everybody picked up the baton and nobody was disqualified because it was seventh grade track, and the kid that finally passed it off was screaming wildly, go, everything I've ever had, I just gave you on the track. And these kids, you would think they were in the Olympics. Most of us will pass our faith on to the next generation like a seventh grader at a track meet. <laughs> you do not have to be perfect. Things will fall and bounce. You may lose a shoe, I don't know. Kids are cooler than us as adults. You will be embarrassed. You will say something stupid. They will laugh at you. Who cares? Pass what you know to be true about the God of the universe on to the next generation. Everything you have, everything you have been given, the person God created you to be, the greatest gift you can return to your savior is to worship him with that and to give that for the sake of others. So friends, let's covenant together to do that for our children. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the tremendous gift of our faith, of the life and the story and the purpose and the meaning that you have given us. Thank you for the circle, the tribes that have poured into each of us, that have brought us to the place of faith where we are sitting here today worshiping. Lord, I pray that you would make us a people who can do that for others. Bring the children who we need to love into focus for us. Help us see them. Help us find them. Help us learn their names so that we might worship and glorify you through our work and partnership with them. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen.